Well, praise the Lord. We, uh, are, we were in this series that we've been studying through the scriptures, and the series has been called God versus Satan. And it's just been this cosmic battle between light and darkness that we've been studying. And the past few weeks, if you've been here, we've been looking at some of the strategies of Satan. How does he work? How does he scheme? Now, I don't know how many of you guys grew up playing musical chairs. Probably most of us in this room or those of you guys watching, you played it at some point in your life where we're all fighting for a seat and every legit game of musical chairs comes down to what? To two final contenders. Two people fighting for the final seat. Why? Because we all know there can't be two masters. There can't be two champions. Only one gets the chair. Only one gets the throne. Well, if you think about this battle between light and darkness, God and Satan, what has always been Satan's desire? What caused Satan to fall in the first place? Well, if you don't know, let me, let me show you Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. And it says this about the devil. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, this is the devil saying, he said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. And so since the beginning, from before the time he even fell, and since the time he fell, his desire has been to assume the throne above God, to sit on the throne. Well, to set up today's message, I want to show you a little video clip that I found of an intense game of musical chairs, where it's down to two contestants. You'll see a person in a light hoodie and a dark hoodie contending for the final seat for the throne. I want to I want you to see the strategy in this. Look what happens. Look, it's rigged. They're gonna pause it right when you ain't there, man. Hold up. I told y'all. <laughs> what a strategy. Today's message is titled Going for the Throne. Going for the Throne. And in this message, I wanna expose two strategies, two schemes of Satan how he's going for a throne. He's going for it. But I pray that as we expose his schemes, that we will join with God as God pulls the chair right out from under him and assumes his rightful place. So let's pray. Let's come before the Lord. And just as we prayed for baby Kalia, I want to pray for baby Judah as well. If you remember from last week, uh, Pastor Gary asked us as a church family to pray for baby Judah uh, Judah's grandparents, Stephanie and Gary, attend our church. They're part of our church family. And we just want to pray uh, that this baby continues to grow and develop well. We have good news that um, he's been putting on some weight, able to, to eat. And we just pray that he'll be able to go home uh, to his family before Thanksgiving without any tubes in him. So would you join me? And let's come before the one who sits on the throne. Father God, we just bow our heads and we bow our hearts and we acknowledge that you, God, are above all else. You are the powerful, amazing, mighty, and miraculous God. And just as we just thank you for bringing Kalia into this world as a, as a miracle, as a testimony of your power and glory, we also want to pray for baby Judah. We ask that 
you would allow him to go home and to grow up in his own household with his parents and that he would continue to physically develop, but also that that he would develop into a boy and eventually a man who will live for you. So God, would you let him, to, let him go home without many tubes in him? Let him be able to, to just thrive, Lord, as you've ordained it. We pray that that is according to your will. And God, we, we just acknowledge that all things come under you. And as we come before your word, I pray that you would do, I pray, God, that you do for everyone listening right now what you've been doing for me all week, that you would speak to us and convict us. Show us areas of our heart that you want to redeem. And I pray that we would be changed, that we would enthrone Christ as King. And so, God, right now, would you help us to resist any temptation to just be distracted? Help us from wandering and staring at the ceiling or wandering on our phones or wandering in thoughts about the week to come. Help us to be here and dialed into your truth and your word. So speak to us now. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles or your apps, I'd love for you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 will be the text for today. And if you remember a few weeks ago in this series, there was a message on angels. And we said that angels are a class of heavenly beings. Angelos actually means messengers. They're messengers from God to deliver a message. And in Revelation 2, we see this angel carrying a message from Christ himself to a church in the city of Pergamum, which was in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey today. And this is what the angel is sent to say. Read this with me, Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Referring to Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. Pause right there. How would you like to have that as the reputation for your city? Right? What would that be like? Welcome to Torrance, the place where Satan's throne dwells. Welcome to Gardena, the dominion of the devil. Come in, come in. No, that's a terrible reputation. Those are sharp words. That's a strong description, Jesus. Why do you keep calling Pergamum the place where Satan lives, where his throne exists? Well, maybe it's because in the city of Pergamum, there were temples all over the place. It was a city of many forms of worship, worship of many different kinds of gods. And so maybe when Jesus calls Pergamum the throne of Satan, maybe he's referring to the Asclepion. Here are the ancient remains of the Asclepion, and the Asclepion was a temple of healing. And Asclepius, in which this temple was erected to honor, Asclepius was the Greek god of healing, of medicine. Maybe you're familiar with this medical symbol uh, with a snake around it. This is actually called the rod of Asclepius because that's who Asclepius was, the god of healing. People believe that Asclepius could heal the mentally, the physically sick. Some people believe he could raise people from the dead. And so in this temple, which interestingly 
if you've ever studied Greek mythology, what form does Asclepion take? Serpent, a snake, a serpent. So in his temple, there are snakes slithering all throughout the temple grounds, and people would travel from all parts of the ancient world to come to the Asclepion, and they would lie down on the temple grounds, spend the night hoping that snakes would come and crawl all over them and touch them in order to bring the healing that they need. So maybe when Jesus calls Pergamum the throne of Satan, he's referring to the Asclepion. Or maybe it's in reference to the many temples set up for the imperial cult. Because emperor worship was a thing in ancient Rome. Set up in the time of Caesar Augustus, there were temples like this one. This is the remains of the temple set up for Caesar Augustus. Here's one that was set up for the emperor Trajan. Because people worshipped human emperors as if they were divine and they would honor these human emperors calling some of them God and King. This emperor is my Lord and King. And so maybe Jesus is referring to this as being the throne of Satan. But then most people think, no, 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 the throne of Satan refers to the altar of Zeus. I'm going to show you a picture of the altar of Zeus. And this is the actual altar that's been restored and actually transported to a museum in Berlin where it sits today. But the altar of Zeus was this temple and this altar that sat high up on a hill overlooking the entire Pergamon Valley. Wherever you were in the city, miles and miles away, you'd look up and you'd see this big throne-like structure sitting on the top and people would come here to worship Zeus. Who is Zeus? He is the king of the Greek gods. He is the greatest of the Greek gods. And you would come to this throne and to this altar to worship him. But not only would you come to the altar of Zeus to honor Zeus, you would also come here to be punished if you didn't. Or if you didn't acknowledge these false gods like Antipas. In verse 13, we had just read that Jesus said himself, Antipas was a faithful witness who was put to death in this very city. History tells us that Antipas became a Christian. And instead of bowing down to all the other gods and emperors that everybody else in Pergamon was bowing down to, he insisted Jesus Christ is Lord and King. And that's the message he preached. And because he refused to bow down to any other god, he was thrown into a brazen bull, a bronze bull that was set up at the altar of Zeus. And one of the worst forms of torture in the ancient world was this bull right here where they would bind their victims and they would throw them into this hollow bronze bull and they would light a huge fire under the bull so that the entire bull would be heated. And the victim inside would slowly roast to death. Not quick Easy death, slow, excruciating, agonizing, painful, torturous death. And as he would be in there, he would begin to moan and scream. And as if you see, there are pipes that come out of the bull's nostrils. And so as it heats up, the victim inside, as he screams, it, it goes, the sound comes out of the nostrils as well as the steam as if the beast were coming alive. And you hear about this, and all I could think is that's pure evil. It's just pure evil. And so many would describe this as being the throne of Satan. 
And so what is it? The temple of Augustus or Trajan or Zeus or Asclepius? Which one is the throne of Satan? Well, here's my question. If none of these temples are dedicated to Satan or erected in honor of the devil himself, then why would any of these or the collections of these be called the throne of Satan? Aren't they technically his rivals? If Satan's trying to get the throne, but these are in other people's names, aren't they his rivals? Why would Jesus call this the throne of Satan? I'll tell you why. Because a throne is what? It's a seat where one sits to govern and to exercise his power and his influence. That's what a throne is. And though no one in Pergamum literally worshiped Satan or the devil, Satan's influence and power was manifested in the fact that he can get an entire population to worship anyone other than the one and only true God, which is Satan's one and only true rival. And if he could get you to worship anyone else, he knows he doesn't need to get you to bow down and worship Satan to feel enthroned. He just needs to get you to worship anyone other than God. He just needs to get you to dethrone God and worship anyone else. And so I, I can ask for a raise of hands and I can say, does anybody here bow down to the devil or to Satan? And probably no one's going to raise their hand here in church this morning. Or I could ask you, do you worship any other gods? Do you bow down to any, any statue of Buddha? Or do you sing praises to the Allah of the Quran? Or do you worship before a statue of the Virgin Mary? And, and most of you would probably say, not at all. I don't worship any other gods. Well, how about President Biden? Anybody worship Biden as our Lord and King? Anybody hail Trump? Anybody see Obama as your Savior? And most of us would probably say, no, that's crazy. But I want to ask, in any way, does any of us elevate anyone or anything else to the throne of our hearts and give that one ultimate devotion and worship? And so the question I want to ask everybody, I challenge you to ask right now and every day when you wake up, who has the throne of my heart? Who has the throne of my heart? Because here's the first scheme I want to expose this morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. Scheme number one, Satan will try to get someone else on your throne. Satan will try to get someone else on your throne. I love how Tim Keller defines idolatry. And his idolatry is when we take basic things or even good things, and elevate them to ultimate things. So when we take good things on this earth and we elevate them to the ultimate place in our hearts, that's idolatry. That's essentially idolatry. So let me try to illustrate that for us. So picture with me, imagine with me a teenage girl. We'll call her Jenny. And so Jenny, because of the world she lives in and social media and her friends at school, the worst possible thing that she could experience is to not be loved, to not be wanted by another boy. That would essentially be like hell on earth for her. That would functionally be hell. 
Yet, on the flip side, the best thing possible for, for Jenny in her mind is to be loved, to be chased, to be desired, to be the apple of some guy's eye. That's heaven on earth for her. And so she decides, I need a savior, someone who's going to save me from this functional hell and bring me into a functional heaven. So she decides in her heart that what she really needs is a boyfriend. She needs a boyfriend who's going to save her, who is going to rescue her from her emptiness and loneliness. And so she gets a boyfriend, and though no girl would ever say that her boyfriend is her God, and no girl would ever say, I bow down and worship my boyfriend, she allows this guy to consume her heart, to assume the throne. Because he'll be the first thing she thinks about when she wakes up. He'll be, the la- she'll be, he'll be the last thing she thinks about when she sleeps. He'll be the one to give her a sense of worth and identity. He'll be the one to rescue her from her worthlessness. And so she will devote her time. And she will devote her thoughts. And she'll give all the money that she even has. She'll use all her energy. She'll give her daily priority to him. And this guy has become her God. That's idolatry. And so I pray right now that the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts that he would start speaking. And he would reveal if there is anyone or anything that we are elevating or enthroning in our hearts above the Lord your God. And some parents right now, they, they hear that and they're like, yes, thank you, Pastor Greg. For t- I hope my kid's listening to this. I'm going to send this to my kid. This is so good. Well, let me speak to the parents. Because I know we have a lot of parents in here. And I'll be straightforward. Because the very subtle form of idolatry that I think we really need to be vigilant against is child worship. The temptation to worship our kids. Anybody bow down and worship your kids as Lord and King? Anybody have a big golden statue of your baby in your living room? At the foot of your bed, you wake up and you worship the statue baby? No, of course not, right? No, we don't worship our kids. We don't engage in child worship. Of course not. But then consider your daily habits and your routine, your small decisions, and your life decisions. What drives how you live? How much of it is driven by your children? Have their academics or their sports their success, their potential fame, has any of that become your greatest priority? To the point where we'll frequently miss church if we have to because my kid has a game on Sunday morning. Or we'll pick up and move our house and abandon uh, this fellowship, this community that God has blessed us with that has helped us in our spiritual growth and we'll leave it to move to this city because it has an academic program for my kid. I don't know if there's a church there for us, but... Who knows? We know there's an academic program for our kids. And we allow our kids to determine how we live because they become the greatest priority. It's amazing how powerful kids are today, how much power kids have over parents, and they don't even have to say anything. They can get parents to stop going to church. That's powerful. And kids are so powerful today. I've seen kids get parents to go to church. 
Parents who have never gone to church in their adult life, they hate church. But all of a sudden, I got kids, and so they'll go to church, not because they want to worship God, but they want their kids to be good. And so I'll go to church, and I hate church, and I'll I'll sacrifice an hour and a half of my Sunday mornings. Although it's drudgery to me, I'll go because I want my kid to be good and have good values. For his sake or for her sake, we'll do this. And all of a sudden, kids begin to reign in our hearts. Now, don't get me wrong, parents, please. Kids are not bad. Well, not all of them. Some of them are actually pretty bad. They're not evil. They're not inherently evil in the sense that they are bad things. No, kids are good gifts from God. But even good things can be elevated to ultimate things in our hearts. And I love what the Carmichaels have done this morning. They are dedicating their child to the Lord But God forbid we should dedicate our lives to our child in the sense that they become our God. We use them for God's glory. And so who consumes your heart and assumes the throne? I'm just giving examples. And I pray that that you're thinking and the Holy Spirit is stirring. Let me give one more example. A few weeks ago, I talked about how we live in a culture, in in a church culture where people are worshiping and praising the servants of God when we should be celebrating the God that they serve, right? The term celebrity pastors or celebrity Christians is a phrase, it's a thing today. And you'll hear it commonly thrown around in the church, celebrity pastors or celebrity worship leaders. And to me, that's tragic. That's tragic. The thought that that people will go to church or watch church online to celebrate certain pastors and certain personalities and certain worship leaders or certain worship bands rather than to go and celebrate God. So I'll listen and I'll go to church only if so-and-so pastor is speaking. Or I'll go to worship early. I'll show up for worship only if so-and-so is leading. And we're creating this culture where we're celebrating people, and they become the reason for why we worship. And I truly believe that one of the reasons we see so many moral failures today, so many falls from the ministry, is because of the desire for celebrity status. And we're feeding the servants of God. And to be honest, the servants of God receiving it, they're, they're thriving off. They're feeding on it to the point where so many Christians today are all about now developing and building a platform for ourselves rather than a platform where we can proclaim Jesus Christ. By now, many of you guys have probably heard of an Instagram account that's gone viral since 2009. It's an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. Have you guys seen this before? Preachers and Sneakers. And this guy's incredible. This guy who runs this account, he finds pictures of pastors or worship leaders in front of their church on a Sunday morning, and he grabs the screenshot, and then he shows you from the internet how much what they're wearing costs. So for example, he found this one pastor, and he shows you from the internet, I don't know if you can see it, this Sunday morning, he's sporting an $800 Versace t-shirt coupled with his $2,000 Louis Vuitton boots to preach. Here's another pastor who he has on his Instagram where he's sporting the Air Yeezy 2s. 
$6,000 at the time of this posting. I found out yesterday that they're going for $10,000 now. This guy has no shortage of material for his Instagram account. Pastors all throughout this Instagram account. Right? And, and so all of a sudden, you have these pastors. And, and I'm not trying to knock them for the value of what they're wearing. Right? Because who knows? I don't know their story. Maybe they got all this stuff as gifts. That, that, that people gave it to them. In fact, I, I've heard some of these pastors say they were given to us by the company. I didn't pay for it. The co- almost like they're being sponsored now to wear this on a Sunday, which is kind of weird to me. But, but here you have these pastors, and, and maybe they did get it for free. Who knows? Or maybe they could afford it because some of these pastors literally make seven figures because of their book sales and they're speaking engagements. So maybe a few thousand dollars on shoes is nothing to them. So I don't want to judge them because of the value of what they wear. But what I'm trying to show you is that there is this culture that's being cultivated by the church. Where more and more it's becoming this look at me culture. Look at me. And, and more and more the pastor is becoming the star of the stage rather than Jesus. Where, where it's more about look at my name brands rather than look at the name above all name brands. Look at the name above all names. Look at Jesus. And the more and more we celebrate the person, the less we realize how awesome is the God that they serve. We're worshiping the servants of God rather than the God that they serve. And this isn't a 2021 thing. Like, we're all prone to praise and celebrate humans. Like, 2,000 years ago, there were these celebrity ministers, Paul and Barnabas, going around, preaching the gospel, doing miracles in the name of Jesus, and people wanted to celebrate these guys. Like, who are these guys? And in Acts chapter 14, it says that as they're preaching the gospel, they heal this guy who, who, who wasn't able to walk. He's able to walk, and people are going nuts. Who are these men? They're like gods. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 11. It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, who's the king of Greek gods, and Paul they called Hermes, who's the messenger god, by the way, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And so what's going on? When the people see what Paul and Barnabas are doing, they want to praise them as if they were gods. And so they go and get gifts and offerings and bulls, and they want to go sacrifice it because you guys are amazing. And what does Paul do? Well, if you read the chapter in verse 15, he doesn't take their gifts and put on these name brands. No, instead, he what? He rips off his clothes. In protest, he rips it off and he says, do not do it. He says, I am a human just like you. I come to preach the gospel. Turn to the living God. Don't do this. I'm a servant just like you. Worship him. 
Church, Satan is going for the throne. He's going for it. And he delights in us enthroning anyone other than God, whether it's the servants of God or the gifts of God or false gods, as long as it's not God. And so here in Pergamum, you got a culture or this pressure to worship Zeus or Asclepius or Trajan or Augustus. Satan didn't care who it was as long as it's not him. But Jesus commends the church in Revelation chapter 2. I'll read it again, verse 13. He says, Yet, church, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He's like, I give this to you. You haven't bowed down to other gods. And so the church in Pergamum, while everybody was worshiping other gods, the Christians there, like Antipas, refused to bow to any other. Now listen, the Pergamum church didn't bow to other gods, but, and here's the big but, but they were guilty of idolatry. It's like, wait, hold on. They didn't bow down to other gods, but they're guilty of idolatry? Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that illogical? Well, let me show you how they were guilty of idolatry because Jesus goes on in verse 14. He has something against them. And here's what he says. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, circle Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, circle Nicolaitans. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Who, who's Balaam? And who are the Nicolaitans? Well, let me try to help you understand. So remember in the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Balaam. And he was hired by the Moabite king, who's an enemy of Israel. He's hired by this king to go and get Israel to fall, curse them. And so because the price was right, Balaam goes and he tries to curse Israel three times. Three times tries to get them to fall, but they would not fall. Why? Because they're God's people. But Balaam comes up with a very crafty plan, kind of like a roundabout way to get them to fall. And here's the plan he came up with. He got the Moabite woman to go and have sexual relationships with the, with the Israelite men. Go and... and and, and do sexual favors for them in return that they worship your God, that they worship Baal. And so the Moabite women came, and they lured in the Israelite men and had sex with them and got them to worship Baal. And Balaam knew if I couldn't directly get them to fall, I will appeal to their fleshly desires. That was his plot, and in Pergamum, there was a strategy of Satan that hadn't changed because according to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it was the same thing, though no Christian in Pergamum would bow down and worship any other god. The Nicolaitans taught this other teaching where Christians began to feel like it's okay to party with the pagans. 
Yeah, we won't bow down to their gods, but we'll go to their pagan festivals and we'll, we'll share in the food in honor of their gods and we'll engage in sexual practices, which was a form of pagan worship in many of these temples. And so though they were not bowing down literally to gods, they began to give in to the desires of their flesh. And in so doing, they were going against the will of God. Just like Balaam taught the Moabites to lure the Israelites in via their fleshly desires, some of these Christians in Pergamum were slowly and subtly being lured in to their own sensual desires in opposition to God. Beware the schemes of Satan. Because if he can't get you to serve other gods, he will get you to serve your flesh functionally making you your own God. So write this down for scheme number two. Listen, if Satan can't get you to bow down to other thrones, then his strategy now is Satan will try to get you on your own throne. Satan will try to get you on someone else's throne. That's one strategy, but here's the second strategy. Satan will try to get you on your own throne to reign in your own heart. Because he's going for it, guys. He's going for the throne. He doesn't want Jesus there. So if he can get you to enthrone other gods, great. But if he can't get you to enthrone other gods, he'll get you to enthrone other people. And if he can't get you to put other people on the throne of your hearts, he'll get you to put you on your own heart. And if he could get you there, then he's got you right where he wants you. It's idolatry in the most subtle form where we begin to assume authority and make up our own rules and our own ways of living and our own guidelines and we start doing what's right according to our desires, what's right in our own eyes. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it reminds me of the book of Judges where over and over again, it talked about this time when Israel had no king. And so they gave into the ways of this world. And here's how it goes in Judges 21, 25. This phrase is repeated throughout the book. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So what? So everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They started doing what was right according to what they wanted to be right. And so what's it saying? Everyone has someone to serve. Everyone has to serve someone And if you are the one you serve and you are your own king, guess what? God isn't. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Like if I were to ask, in fact, let me ask it now. If you, show of hands, if you have given your life to Christ and you've declared Christ as your Lord and King confidently, would you raise it up right now? Boldly raise it up. If Christ is your Lord and King, would you raise your hands? Amen. You can put your hands down. Amen. A lot of us follow after Jesus as king. But for those of you who raise your hand, and you don't have to raise your hand anymore, but if I were to ask, now how many of you who raise your hand, how many of you drink until drunkenness without any remorse or repentance? And if so, I would ask, is that to satisfy your God or is that to satisfy your cravings? 
If I were to ask how many of you spend more time on your device every day checking sports scores or stock prices or your Instagram account or your Facebook page, how many of us, uh, how many of us spend more time on that and spend zero time, essentially no time in God's word? And if that's you, I'd ask, is that God's asking or is that your heart asking? For you to do that. How many of you feel perfectly justified in shouting expletives on the road when that person cuts you off, which seems like almost every day now, or you feel right in talking trash about your enemy who did you wrong? How many of us regularly have fits of anger toward our family members, speak unlovingly to our spouse or to our family members, and you have no plans to change that at all? You'll continue to have fits of rage. I'll ask you, is that right in God's eyes or is that right in your own eyes? How many of us have sexual relationships with someone who's not your spouse, premaritally or extramaritally? How How many of us view sexually explicit material on a regular basis and I have no plans to change my habits as long as no one finds out? And I would ask you, does God tell you to do that? Or your flesh? There's so many of us who daily live by our own rules that are directly opposite of the laws laid out for us in the law of God. And I'm not speaking out of condemnation. God has been convicting my own heart this week as I've been studying this. And so we're, we're in the same place. We have to ask ourselves, who assumes the throne of my heart? When we assume the throne of our own heart and we govern our own actions and we do what's right in our own eyes, according to our good pleasure, then Christ is not the king of your heart. You are. The king of your heart is you. So friends, please beware the scheme of Satan because when I am on my throne, the great I am isn't. And when we enthrone ourselves, we essentially dethrone Christ in us. And that's exactly what Satan wants. If we are ever found on the throne of our hearts, then not only does Satan have you right where he wants you, Satan is right where he wants to be, exercising his power and his influence and his authority. He's right where he wants to be. I want to close, and I want to bring this all home by sharing this illustration with you. Um, When I was in college, I, I went to school in Irvine, and as a college student, you'll do whatever it takes to survive. And so I got this opportunity to make a lot of money. And I said, come, you can make a lot of money. Just get just some. It's very professional, so, so make sure we wear a suit and tie and, and come to this office building here in Irvine. So I get all ready, and I show up, and the place is amazing. Like, there's food spread out everywhere, and there's drinks available for us. This is awesome. Right? And I find out very soon, not too long into it, it's a pyramid scheme. Now, some of you guys, based off your reaction, I know you've been familiar with pyramid schemes. Maybe you've been invited to one before. Maybe you've been involved in one. Maybe some of us listening right now, you're in a pyramid scheme right now. 
And so if you are, what I'm about to say is not going to make you happy. And so if you have any complaints or criticisms, go ahead and email me at pastorgary at southbaycommunitychurch.com. Okay, just let me know all your complaints there. I'll, I'll listen to it. But listen, I'm, I'm here at the seminar, and like one by one, these managers, young professionals come up, good-looking people, by the way, they come up and start telling us how we can make money. And they say, listen... It's very simple. You just pay a, a, a basic amount. You pay this fee, and we'll get you set up, and you can own your own business. Have you ever wanted to own your own business? And there's a couple ways you could make money in this business. You could sell this product, which is a great product. It really is. Or you can also invite people into this with you. Have them start their own business. And the more people that you invite, the more money you will make. Why? Because when they come in, like you, they'll pay a little amount. They'll pay a fee. But guess what? Every time that they buy into this, guess who gets some of that money? You do. And all of a sudden, there's money in our eyes. We're like, really? And so what are you doing? You're thinking about my auntie. And my, who else can I ask? My cousins, my friend from third grade, my friend from high school. I haven't talked to him in 15 years, but I'll give him a call. I think about my softball team and my basketball team and, and my life group at church, my life group leader. Oh, maybe I'll ask my pastor. Shame on some of you guys, right? Like, who can I ask? Because anybody I get in, I'll get some of that money. And when they ask people, we get some of that money as well. And all of a sudden, money comes rolling in. And one by one, these managers, I kid you not, they're like telling us how easy this is. And they're flashing cash in front of us. College students are flashing. I made this much just in this week, guys. They're showing us checks. Read it. Look at that amount. That's in the last month only. And as these managers are coming up one by one, everybody's like clapping and cheering. Woo! Everybody's hooting and hollering. Like every other line, every, there's people standing up. It was crazy and electric in that room. And everyone's, yes, yes, woo, money. And one by one, they come up and they sell us on this idea, you can be your own boss. And I'll never forget, toward the end of the night, this was like the highlight of the night. This guy comes out to the stage, and this is like the guy. This is like the head haunt. This is the president of the company. Young guy. But he, he doesn't come out in a suit. He's not in no fitted suit. He, I kid you not, he comes out. He's got white linen pants, loafers with no socks. This guy's awesome. This guy has like a Tommy Bahama shirt, like Aloha print shirt buttoned down, like all the way open up so you can see his freshly waxed chest. Right? He's got dirty blonde hair slicked back. He's got sunglasses in his pocket. It's 8 p.m. at night. There's no sun. You don't need sunglasses. Who are you? You're amazing. That's what you are. As if he were showing us he just got off a private plane because he just flew in from the Bahamas just to meet with you. Because he can. And he talks about how he can travel the world and go on vacations. Not for business, for vacation because he can. And he's got a Lamborghini and a Ferrari because he can. And he can wine and dine at this restaurant and that restaurant because he can. And everybody's like, <laughs> 
Who is this guy? And everybody in their minds thinking, I could be like that. I could have all that. And I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this image. He had a board on stage just like this. And he had a diagram just like this. And he said to everybody, he says, you all know this. In every business, you know there's only one person who truly profits. You know that. Everyone's like, yes, that's true. I know that. And everybody in your business only makes money for you. They'll build your empire. Yes, what am I doing with my life? That's who I need to be. And as I listen very closely to his words, I have to give it to him. He didn't lie. But he was extremely deceptive. Because not once, not once did he say, you will be this person. I knew exactly what he knew in his heart. There's only one who truly prospers, whose empire is built, and he knew it was him. And I've had so many friends all throughout high school, all throughout college, even after college, who have given into schemes like this, who have thrown money at this idea that I can be the boss of my own life and not one of my friends that I personally know has ever gotten what they promised. I just know that they helped build one's empire. Church, beware the schemes of Satan. He's not this guy dressed in a red suit with red tights and a red cape and a pitchfork, a goatee, and horns that goes around scaring people like, yeah, yeah. Like, where do we get that idea? Where does the Bible say the devil looks like that? The Bible says he comes disguised as an angel of light. I think it's more likely that he might come in with white linen pants, loafers, and a nice Aloha Prince shirt saying, hey, listen, you can be your own boss. You could be the king of your life. When we all know that, really, that just goes to build his throne. Church, may it never be said of us. May it never be described of my heart or our church as it was described of Pergamon. That this is a place where Satan's throne exists, where Satan lives. But may we every single day deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow King Jesus. May we enthrone one and one only to the greatest place in our hearts and give him all power and authority, the ultimate authority, God and God alone. To him be all glory, honor, power, and praise. Amen? Amen. And so we do that now. Let's bow before him. And let's come before him in prayer and in worship. And as you bow your heads, wherever you are, maybe you're in your home or in your car listening right now, I want to speak to every single person, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or this is your first time ever hearing a church message. Who has the throne of your heart? Christ came to be your king. And the Bible said he came to die on the cross for your sins so that you'd be forgiven. So that you'd be set free and that you would be able to live eternally in his kingdom. 
He died on the cross. And then the Bible says that he didn't just die, he rose. To prove that he has the power to give life. He is king. And now today he sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Bible says if you believe that by faith, you'll be saved. There's nothing you have to do. It's a free gift. But you just believe by faith. You receive his grace and forgiveness. And so right now, I want to encourage everybody right now, let's just confess. If this is how the Lord is moving in your heart, confess. God, I've put things above you. I've made things the king of my heart. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your sports. Maybe it's your stocks. But I want you to just lay that at his feet. Confess it and say, God, I want to put you back on the throne. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'll pray it out loud. I'll say it out loud. And you could just pray it in your heart as if you're talking to God. But Father God, I just confess that there are many things I let take over my heart. And right now, I want to enthrone you. I declare by faith, Jesus, you are Lord and King. I believe that you came to die for my sins. You came to give me life. And not only did you die, but you rose from the grave and you're seated on the most high throne. So help me this day forward, every day by faith, to walk wholly committed to you. Help me to walk trusting that Jesus is not just my Savior, but also my King. Help me to live in your ways and not my own. Help me to do what's right in your eyes and not my own. I give my life to you. And Father God, we thank you so much that you're such a good and powerful God. And yet you love us and call us your own. And so right now, God, we sing together in one voice and we lift you higher and higher. For you are God and God alone. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.